This is the AAOS Advocacy Podcast, part of the Bone Beat Orthopedic Podcast channel. This series features important conversations on health policy issues, as well as advocacy efforts to advance access and quality to musculoskeletal health care. Be sure to tune in on the third Tuesday of every month for our regular program. I'm your host, Doug Lundy, chair of the AAOS Advocacy Council. All right, y'all, I am at the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons annual meeting here in Chicago, and I have the pleasure of talking with James Hutch Huddleston, who is a professor of orthopedic surgery at Stanford Hospital in Palo Alto, California. Hutch is well known to many of us. He is actually the second vice president of AUKUS. He's also been on the chair of the AUKUS Health Policy Committee and is also heavily involved with the American Joint Replacement Registry, and we're going to have him talk about that. The purpose of our podcast today is to talk about advocacy, how it responds and how it relates to the use of registries and what the Academy is doing with registries and how we in the advocacy space are using this for the betterment and taking care of our patients. So, Hutch, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Doug. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Thanks for joining us today. Can you tell us more about what got you into the whole issues with registries and how that works with your role as a total joint arthroplasty surgeon? Sure. So I've worked at Stanford since I finished my training in 2005, and I did for the first six or seven years in my practice approximately 70% revisions. Some of those revisions are uh, done for devices that just sort of naturally reach the end of their lifespan, but many of those failures were premature and related to poor patient selection or poor surgical technique. Seeing the results of that day in, day out mentally really wore on me. I spent a lot of time thinking to myself as I was in the operating room late at night, there's got to be some way to make this better. And that got me thinking about the healthcare delivery system in our country and the need for a national registry. I did my training at the Harvard Combined Orthopedic Residency Program in Boston, and I did my fellowship on the adult reconstruction service at Massachusetts General Hospital. And there was a gentleman named Henrik Malkow, who has been instrumental in the development of the Swedish hip arthroplasty register who was one of my fellowship mentors, and he really opened my eyes to the world of registries and the role that they play in optimizing the value of the care that we deliver to our patients. Very good. So what are the AOS registries? Many of us have heard about this. We've seen this in AOS marketing instruments and such. What are these registries? The creation of the first so-called registry module, which wasn't really a registry module at the time, was in 2009 is when the American Joint Placement Registry was incorporated as an independent entity. It had funding from the academy, and then it was quickly let to be on its own. That was 2009. Discussions about developing a national registry here in the United States started in earnest, uh, really, at the turn of the century. And there are successful international registries in Australia, in the U.K., in Scandinavia, and in other parts of the world. And creating a registry in the United States was a much more complicated task than those, mainly because of the size of the country and the fragmentation of our healthcare delivery system. We knew it was going to be a challenge, but in 2001, my current boss, Bill Maloney, had a conversation with Richard Gelberman, who at the time was the Academy president. 
and uh, had Richard's support to work on creating a registry. And then they had a national meeting with all the stakeholders to figure out what would the data elements be and what would the financing be and how do we get there. So that took about a decade to get it to the point where we were an incorporated entity. And then about three years later in 2012 was when we first started to collect data. We have data now that we report regularly back to 2012. So besides the AJRR, what other registries are within the Academy's menu of registries? The AJRR is considered the cornerstone, the second registry module in this concept of AOS being heavily involved in registries was championed by Bill Maloney when he was the Academy president. And Bill's vision was to have different modules. And his thought was, look, somebody is going to do this. The payers are already very interested in uh, getting performance metrics out. And we are the best suited to drive what those metrics are going to be. And we are best suited to gather the data that will drive those metrics. So he wanted to have a registry essentially labeled as a module for every subspecialty. So American Joint Placement Registry, which is hip and knee arthroplasty, was first. Second was the shoulder and elbow registry. Third was the musculoskeletal tumor registry. There's a joint venture now between the American Association of Neurologics and the American Spine Surgeons, and they've created the American Spine Registry. And the most recent registry, which just formally got off the ground in 2021, is the fracture registry. So there's five different modules at this point. So you got a five different registries in there. How does the Academy oversee these? At the top of the organizational chart is what we refer to as the Registry Oversight Committee, or the ROC. And Dr. Maloney, who has been chair of the board for the American Joint Replacement Registry, he's currently head of the ROC. And there are representatives from every registry on the ROC, as well as a few other ad hoc members. Okay. How did the registries actually help advance musculoskeletal care? Like anything, we have a commitment to be lifelong learners and to continually work to improve the care that we deliver to our patients. We can't really do that unless we know what the problems are and what the successes are. So you need the data. That's really the foundation of any registry is getting the data in terms of what is going on, both good and bad, and that can help us to inform decisions, which will hopefully down the line improve the value of the care that we deliver. And you brought up some interesting points with the Scandinavian registry, which a lot of us were familiar with. But of course, a lot of this also goes back to the governmental systems that each one of these registries, the countries that these exist in, So when we're talking about the United States, of course, the federal government has a fair amount of role and effect on what we do. So if we think about it from that perspective, what role does the federal government have in regulating the use of registries to advance the goals of value-based care? That's a great question. So if you look at, say, the Australian registry or the UK registry or the Swedish hip arthroplasty registry, those are all primarily funded by the government. Now, those are smaller countries with a more homogenous patient population and for the most part, a nationalized health system. They were the major funders, they being the government of these efforts. And unfortunately, that has not been the case here in the United States. Interestingly, the government is certainly very interested in the data that we are generated, and they have partnered with us along the way to help us, but they certainly have not pulled their weight in terms of funding any of the registries. Yeah, that's a problem, because certainly if they could direct funding toward registries, that could be a significant lift for the value-based care of the country, wouldn't you say? Without a doubt. When we started American Joint Placement Registry, it had some funding from the academy, but the majority of funding was from industry which obviously represents a degree of conflict. As we expected over time, more of the revenue has come from the site licensing fees. 
So now we're at about two thirds of the overall revenue is coming from site licensing fees and one third from industry. And eventually we'll get to the point where we don't need industry funding anymore. But American Joint Placement Registry at this point is self-sufficient, financially solvent model. The other registries can't say that yet. AJR doesn't need any government money, but we certainly would welcome it for helping the other registries get further along. Will it be absolutely necessary? No, but that doesn't mean we wouldn't take it. If you were talking to a member of Congress, what arguments would you make to help advocate to that member of Congress for the value of the registry and why they should put public money into this for the betterment of the U.S. population? Healthcare consumes a disproportionate amount of our GDP. It's well known. And if you look at what we get for those dollars spent and compare that to other countries, the United States is at not the middle of the list, not the bottom third. They are at the bottom of the 100 most industrialized nations. So we're spending the most per capita and we're getting the least back for it. So the government should be very interested in addressing this problem. And it's well known that, especially just looking at, say, hip and knee arthroplasty care, there's tremendous variation throughout the country of practice patterns. And that leads to a wide array of different results. As a revision surgeon, I'm keenly aware that there's optimal room for improvement in the care delivered for hip and knee arthroplasty. And by getting an idea of what is actually going on in terms of complication rates, readmission rates, discharge to skilled nursing facilities, in fairly granular detail, we can use those data to better inform where those dollars would be spent. So in what ways does legislation on Capitol Hill impact the development and the use of registry data? It has, I would say, tremendous potential to impact how registry data is used and how registries are supported. Unfortunately, we haven't been able to garner a whole lot of attention on that issue. American Joint Placement Registry was designated several years ago as what we call a QCDR or a Qualified Clinical Data Registry. And that QCDR allows for direct reporting of physician data in MIPS towards the quality payment program. That's one use of the data, one of many uses on the national level that the registry has shown to be very valuable for. But that only was possible because the government has a program, the QCR, to go ahead and help us with that. But there are many other opportunities for the government to get involved, and we expect that those opportunities will continue to increase as time goes on. So, Hutch, as you know, the Medicare Access and Chip Reauthorization Act of 2015, also known as MACRA, had two different pathways that they wanted orthopedic surgeons and all physicians in America to utilize when they're taking care of Medicare patients. One was the MIPS pathway, and the other one was, of course, the alternative payment model pathway. So within MIPS, if I was a MIPS participant, how could registries help me with reporting to CMS or the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services? So currently within the quality payment program, as you pointed out, you can go to one of two sides. You can go to MIPS or you can go to alternative payment models. In the joint placement world, we've been very interested in alternative pay models, but that's not necessarily going to be applicable to other subspecialties, not at least at the moment. But if you are in MIPS, which the majority of physicians are, there are different quality realms and reporting what your results are is one of those. And right now the hospital has to do that or the practice has to do that. That's a pretty onerous process, 
And so if you have gone to the trouble to develop a system within your practice or your ambulatory surgery center or your hospital to participate in one of the registries and you are dumping your data directly from your EHR and some is manually input to the registry, there's no reason why you need to create another pathway. Being able to send it to the registry as you would normally do and have the registry be able to feed that through the QCDR mechanism directly to CMS is very attractive. I really commend y'all over at AUKUS for developing all that you have done over there. When I was working on this space within the Trauma Association, we did a lot of work to try to see if we could lift up a trauma or a fracture registry, and the work behind it was just absolutely overwhelming. Can you explain what is a registry versus what would make a registry a QCDR? Sure. I would liken a QCDR to sort of a like an additional certification, such that's put out by the Joint Commission or hand surgery, things like that. A registry is essentially just a database. And whoever creates the registry determines what data elements go in. And getting those data elements in is no small feat from a technologic standpoint. But once that's created, actually getting the so-called boots on the ground to continue to feed that data in and to make sure that the data is complete and that it's accurate is a much bigger endeavor than most people think, and that's why it took so long to get American Joint Replacement Registry up and going now. The other modules have come to fruition faster, and a lot of that has been based on the learnings that we had from AJRR. But you have to meet certain qualifications for CMS to be able to be designated as a QCDR, and it's essentially a stamp of the approval of the validity of the data. Well said, and y'all did a great job of getting that up because in the Trauma Association, we realized the very difficult task that that was going to place in front of us. So how does AOS Advocacy help to ensure that the policies implemented by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services in the Quality Payment Program promote the use of registry data as a pathway for participation? Right now, the only pathway that I'm aware of to get registry data is through QCDR, but we hope that the other registries that are now up and running will be able to have that same designation, and that will allow more providers to utilize that pathway through the QPP. There are other ways that we've used registry data to help us on the advocacy side. As you know well, essentially whatever CMS does, the private payers follow suit quite quickly. In general, say for an arthroplasty surgeon across the country, about half of their patients are Medicare, half are going to be private paid. Having been intimately involved in our efforts to preserve our professional fees for hip and knee arthroplasty, which continue to be number one target for CMS based on the volume of services that we provide as the largest in the country, we haven't had a whole lot of success in doing this. And it seems like our efforts have only really been an effort in mitigation. But I'll give you a specific example. We had out of the blue the RUC through the AMA, which is the committee that determines essentially what the relative value units are going to be for a service that the physicians provide. The RUC came to us and said, hey, we're seeing that all of your unit compartmental knee arthroplasties, not all, but greater than 50%, which is the threshold that they use, greater than 50% are actually being done as an outpatient now, and you're currently being reimbursed as an inpatient status. So that needs to be revisited. And CMS has an interest in high volume codes to revisit them every so often, and that's fair, but ours have really been unfairly targeted in our opinion. But the RUC said this is what we call a site of service anomaly, and it now needs to be resurveyed. And so we had to go through that process. But along that way, they said, we have data that greater than 50% of the people are going home the same day. 
we didn't actually think that was true. We went to the American Joint Replacement Registry and we said we want a breakdown of length of stay for all private payers and all Medicare patients. And then we were able to use that data to bolster our argument that wasn't necessarily the case. So there's things that are already established like the QPP and the MIPS reporting through QCDR, but there are other issues that have come up along the way that have tremendous consequence that we've been able to use the registry data to help us with on the advocacy side. If I recall, when I first heard the AJR coming up, one of the key things that was discussed was that it could be an early detector of defective implants or other things so we can more quickly get those off the market. Have you had any experience with any learnings of that through the AJRR? Sure. Yeah. So if you look at the early international registries, primarily Swedish hip arthroplasty, Australian National Registry, and then the National Registry of England and Wales, they were so-called metal and plastic registries to start with. And when we say that, we are saying, look, we need to know what's going in and what's being revised. So if there is a device that is an outlier, we would be able to pick it up early. And one of the events that happened in the United States really galvanized the efforts to create a national registry for hip and knees was a recall of what we call the Sulzer Intraop Cup. The Sulzer Intraoperative Cup was one of the first sockets that had highly cross-linked polyethylene liners, which have been shown to essentially be wear-resistant and really improve the survivorship of hip replacement. So it was a popular cup, and there was tremendous promise for this. But the company changed its manufacturing location from Switzerland to Austin, Texas. And in the new manufacturing process, there was a, an oversight made that was an innocent mistake that left in the passivation process a greasy residue on the back of the socket. And so where bone was supposed to be growing into the porous surface, there was some oil. And so these sockets didn't osseointegrate. Surgeons in the United States were revising those sockets with the same socket. So when that happened, people said, this is not acceptable. And if we had known what was going on on a national level, we would be able to go ahead and uh, stop this. So that was definitely, as it was with other international registries, that was the main driving force to create the American Joint Replacement Registry. That being said, AJR was designed with a multi-stakeholder board. So in addition to surgeons and members from industry on the board, we have representatives from the American Hospital Association and the American Health Insurance Plan Association and also a patient representative. So that multi-stakeholder model really was our way of getting some interest in aspiring to be able to really deliver on the value proposition of the registry, not just in metal and plastic, but other issues that are important to other stakeholders in healthcare, such as length of stay and cost of the overall episode and not having people go to skilled nursing facilities and things like that, areas where we know we can save money and maintain the quality. Very good. Okay. So the Academy's obviously partnered with AUKUS, right? Yes, AUKUS is one of the official sponsors of the American Joint Replacement Registry. Are there any registries that are out in the making that you can tell us about, or is that all secret? So it's not secret. There's room for other modules for sure. We have a finite amount of resources, and we would like to see each module, as it matures, get to a certain level of self-sufficiency before we say, okay, bring on some more. Foot and ankle is interested in having a registry. Hand at one point may be interested in having a registry. So there's no question that there are other subspecialties that would be amenable to this. And we expect to see that down the line. I can't personally give you a timetable. And I've personally worked with Mike Gardner, one of your partners on the trauma registry. And he did a tremendous amount of work on that. And that was a lot of fun working with Mike on those things. Do you see anybody in industry trying to influence or reach, participate with registry development? Or is that a conflict of interest we don't want to get into? 
So we were definitely criticized at American Drawing Placement Registry for industry having a seat at the table. They do not have a seat on our board, or I should say it's now a steering committee anymore, but we all understand the conflict that lies there. That being said, industry has tremendous interest in the registry. And one of the things we're working towards now is that in other parts of the world, they have interest in using AJR data to meet specifications to allow them to sell their implants in other countries, particularly in Europe is what we're working on now. And not to mention that with AJRR, that registry or industry has funded the lion's share of the endeavor. And the goal was to have that wean off over time, and we're getting there. But regardless of what happens, they're going to be acutely aware of what the data shows. One of the challenges that we're focusing now at the American Joint Placement Registry as we are disseminating more impactful data is use of the data in ways that is not necessarily statistically correct. And uh, I think it's important for folks to realize that registry data is prospectively designed, but retrospectively collected, and it's observational data. It's very important to point out that with people being interested in using the data that's available, that it has to be analyzed in a proper fashion so that the conclusions that are drawn are appropriate based on the limitations of observational data set. Sure, absolutely. Let's look into your crystal ball for a minute. What's the future of the registries look like in, say, the next five years? Things that we are struggling with currently at the American Joint Placement Registry are data completeness. There needs to be incentive for people to put it in properly. There's always going to be some inherent limitations with administrative coding data. But we think with technology in terms of machine learning, there will be ways to pick up more data from the electronic health record automatically. So that should improve the completeness. And we're also working on paring down the data set. The burden of data collection should not really be minimized. One of the major deficiencies in American Drawing Placement Registry is that we essentially have 100% follow-up on all of our Medicare patients through a body called ResDEC or the Research Data Committee. The CMS ResDEC data doesn't allow us to get private pay patients because they don't have claims on private pay patients. So one of the focuses, in addition to the minimum data set, is going to be trying to get private payers to give us administrative claims data that they already have. So that's in the works One of the impediments to getting people to embrace the registry is that the surgeons will say, I take care of the sick and patients. If you don't have risk adjustment, then you're not accurately saying what is going into my numbers. So one of the concepts that we have thrown around for a long time that when I become chair of the steering committee, I'm going to focus on is trying to get some level of risk adjustment into AJRR, which we think will really help the fairness of the process. After that, where are we going to go? I don't really know. There are different pressures to go different areas. There is a loud voice that would like to have more granular data on blood transfusions. The list goes on. We just don't have the bandwidth to collect that. So that's one thing that we're looking into that I think you'll see more in the future. Other folks who are actually paying the bills, they want to see performance measures. And essentially the way that it works is you get your data you get compared to your fellow surgeons. If you're an outlier, you're given a performance improvement plan. And if you don't improve, they can say you can't do the operation anymore. That's how it works in Scotland. There's similar processes in England and Wales and in Australia and in the Scandinavian countries. So the question is, are we going to get to that point in the United States? I think possibly. Is it a long way off? I think so. Is there any evidence that the credentialing based on registry outcomes data makes a difference in terms of patient care in those countries? So I can't give you actual numbers, but knowing champions of the registries overseas, specifically in Scotland and England and Wales, they have been pleasantly surprised that the vast majority of surgeons who are told that they are an outlier, they don't get angry about it. 
and I think it's honest, the vast majority of surgeons actually get better, and there's no question that's going to improve the care the patients receive. That's very interesting. So when I was working with Mike Gardner on the fracture registry, Mike made a repeated plea while we were developing different registries within the fracture registry that this had to be as much of a automatic extraction from the EMR as possible. If you had, and since you clearly are an expert on the AJRR specifically, how much of the data points coming into the AJRR are automatically extracted out of the EMR versus data points that somebody has to sit down and actually input? So I think there's no question that Mike is spot on with this, and I can't tell you the exact numbers. I should know it, but it's about two-thirds are automatically populated and about one-third are manual entry. A situation gets even a little bit murkier with, say, trying to capture the use of robotics or the use of surgical navigation. So navigation, there's imageless, there's handheld, there's computer console-based. And so we don't know actually what kind of navigation is always being used. There are some codes for navigation, but it doesn't specify that. And the same for robotics. We don't know what version of software they're used. So that stuff needs to be put in manually. And the more that we can get away from that, the better off we'll be. And that's what has led to this recent effort that we're about to finalize about paring down the elements that we originally collected in the AJR down to a minimum data set, with the idea being that almost all of those can be automatically populated now. But given what's going on with machine learning, we think in the future, things like surgical approach will have very high degrees of accuracy with automatic population. So that's not in the too distant future. All right, last question. So in a perfect world, you and I are heading up to Capitol Hill. We can ask anybody anything we want. What's the best, most significant advocacy opportunity for registries that we would have at that point? I would tell them that first and foremost, we need to be able to educate them on the value that registries can bring to the healthcare system. They don't get that now. As you know well, they don't understand many issues to do with healthcare. Fortunately, they listen to us. They don't always act upon what we ask them to do, but at least they listen to us. So I think first and foremost, we have to start with educating them with real world examples of how registries improve the value of care with the goal being that we would want eventually get financial support in terms of just being able to create and sustain the registry. But then also with the various quality programs that are in place and inevitably with the new quality programs that will come up in the future, that they allow registry data to be used to satisfy their reporting requirements. Wow. Okay, y'all. This has been quite an honor discussing registries and the development and the advocacy related with registries with Dr. James Hutch Huddleston, professor of orthopedic surgery and a total joint arthroplasty surgeon at Stanford Hospital in Palo Alto. One thing we didn't bring up is that Hutch is about to become chair of the AJRR as Brian Springer steps off at this meeting, and we appreciate Brian's work on this as well. So Hutch, thanks very much for being on the uh, podcast, sir. Thanks very much for having me, Doug. It's a pleasure to be here, and it's really exciting to be back at an in-person meeting. So thank you for the opportunity. All right, y'all. I would encourage you to go to the AAOS website and look under the registries tab about how the Academy is using registries, how they were developed, the current menu of registries that we have, and how you and your hospital system can get involved in registry utilization. Thank you for listening to this episode of the AAOS Advocacy Podcast, part of the Bonebeat Orthopedic Podcast channel with production and sound design by Mission Based Media. For more information on this topic and other AAOS efforts to shape the future of musculoskeletal healthcare, please visit aaos.org forward slash the Bonebeat advocacy.